Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll read the text. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand and apply what we read this morning. And through these things, Lord, understanding them, I pray that you would help us to gain a better burden for the lost and help us, Lord, to be more bold through the power of the Spirit as we witness that we might understand and uh, be more quick to give the gospel and show more compassion toward people, Lord, who don't know you as Savior. And uh, we pray that you would help us to understand this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk a little bit softer this morning since I have to preach twice in one morning. So uh, if it's not my usual style, I apologize. So let's read the text. We are in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. <clears throat> so Paul goes on from teaching now the rapture event, and he continues on eschatologically speaking with end time events, which the next thing would be the tribulation. And really that's what chapter 5 is speaking of here in these first 11 verses. Something that you and I as believers will not have to go through. And the very order of how he presents these things is, as we will see, a reason for believing in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the New Testament church. But what, and so what we hope to get out, and I believe this is what your book says, that um, the goal really of this lesson, verses 1 through 3, is that you and I would gain a better understanding of end time events so that it can motivate us and um, uh, to give the gospel and share and have more compassion for people who don't know Christ. And that really is why we study um, eschatology. We don't, you know, we don't, uh, knowledge puffeth up, right? But charity edifieth. And so if you and me study prophecy for the sole purpose of saying, well, I know what the red horse in Revelation means, well, then we've missed the whole point of biblical prophecy. It really is supposed to drive you and me to a, a holier lifestyle in Christ. And it's to drive you and me to have more compassion for people who don't have him. So what is the day of the Lord? You know, it, we really we need to define this term if we're going to get our eschatology correct and understand what he is saying. The day of the Lord is not ever used in conjunction with Jesus' um, rapture return, if I can put it that way. Okay? It's always something we find used in conjunction with God's wrath. In his, uh, it's something we find used continuously throughout the Old Testament in relation to his second coming, uh, something that we would call the return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon, the return to set up his kingdom. That is the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, let's, let's define it biblically as we go through some things the Bible has to say about the day of the Lord. Number one, it is a time that stretches from the millennial kingdom to, uh, or excuse me, from the beginning of the tribulation period to the end of the millennial kingdom. It's not one day, and I don't think anybody in here believes it is. I think we all understand the day of the Lord is a time frame. But it is a time that stretches from the tribulation period to the actually the end of the millennial kingdom. Look at Joel chapter 3 with me. Joel chapter 3 and we'll look at verse 9 through 21 and these verses are apocalyptic by nature. We won't take the time to set up the context of them, we just don't have time for that, but they are apocalyptic by nature. 
And they do talk about end time events. Specifically, they begin with the Battle of Armageddon, which we would place toward the latter end of the tribulational period. And uh, being a time of God's wrath, this day of the Lord, really we can say it's all of the tribulation because we see God's wrath poured out upon the heathen at the very commencement of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. Okay. But chapter 3, verse 9 of Joel, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. So God's making a, a call to all the wicked of the earth. Prepare war, make up, wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, the opposite of what it will be in the millennial kingdom, where he says do just the opposite. Let the weak say, I am strong, a false sense of security. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about, thither, and then the prophet is crying out to God, Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. And we see that when Jesus meets the wicked of the earth in Revelation 19 and slays them with what? The sword of his mouth, right? The breath of his nostrils will he slay the wicked. Um, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. What do we see in Revelation 14? We see the Son of Man thrust his sickle into the earth, right? And then we see the angel reap the earth. That's not a good reaping. That's a bad reaping. And then that fruit is cast into the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And then we see that uh, wine or of the wrath of God come out as blood to the horse bridles. This is, so this is a bad thing we're reading about here. Come, get you down. For the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Well, we know for a fact right there that it at least encompasses the tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon, but it doesn't stop there. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. We'll stop there for the sake of time. So God speaks of this day of the Lord, and it encompasses not only that battle, but also as we transition into the millennial kingdom, speaking of Jerusalem being God's millennial city, where the temple will be. And we'll actually have a new millennial city. But Peter has some interesting things to say about the day of the Lord. And look how he lumps it uh, in with eschatology. Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, he views the entire period all the way to the end of the millennium, including the destruction of this old earth and the old heavens, as the day of the Lord. Uh, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Sound familiar? In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So it's important, important that we understand what the day of the Lord is time wise. 
Uh, otherwise, you can get real confused in your eschatology, especially as you read the Gospels, which, by the way, are Old Testament. Are they not? Really, the Gospels are Old Testament because the church isn't in existence yet. And so when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24 and 25, and he's talking about people being caught away and uh, eagles being gathered together where the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. The, if you don't understand that that's after the rapture, then you can start putting the rapture in weird, odd places. And that's how people end up with odd views of the rapture and when it occurs. Okay, so it is a time-encompassing millennium, uh, the tribulation period and all in between. It is a time after the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is very important to understand in our eschatology. Isaiah chapter 61 and Luke chapter 4. You'll need a finger in both of those places. Luke chapter 4 and Isaiah 61. I love when Jesus, when the Bible, New Testament, makes commentary on the old. For me, it personally clears things up. Keeps me from getting all twisted around in my thinking. And uh, Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4. But Isaiah 61 is where we need to start. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That would be the Lord's first coming, and we'll find that true because of what he says in Luke chapter 4. But then he talks about his second coming, and the day of vengeance of our God. And then what follows fits a millennial context, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, for the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, when Jesus quotes this passage in Luke chapter 4, in the city of Nazareth, in the synagogue there, beginning in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he brought, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, which was quite a feat, by the way, because <laughs> their Old Testament scriptures were literally, if you ever look at an Old Testament writing in Hebrew, and I've, and I've seen the, the book of Isaiah in Hebrew, in, in the, like one of the original copies, and it is literally, there's no break. There's no break, there's no period, there's nothing. It's just Hebrew character after Hebrew character in a straight line like this. And so you have to basically know where things end and things begin. Uh, it just never ceases to amaze me. Don't complain about our English language and how hard it is. He has sent me to heal. So he quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he only quotes the first part of verse 2. To he, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And what does he do? Closes the book and sits down. Gave it again to the minister and sat down. Why didn't he keep reading? Because the second part of that verse hadn't been fulfilled yet. He came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So really, if we think about eschatology and the church age, are we still in the acceptable year of the Lord? Technically, we are. We are still in this, what we would call the age of grace, where God is dealing with people and calling people through the gospel and not pouring out the abundance of his wrath yet. But that's coming. That's the day of vengeance of our God. And so he closes the book and sits down and says, this day is this prophecy fulfilled 
uh, in your ears in verse 21. Okay, so the day of the Lord comes after the acceptable year of the Lord. So that will help us get a mindset of, okay, we're getting our eschatology straight by these different clues that the, that the Lord is leaving us. Uh, we won't go to various passages for the sake of time, but you will find this truth wherever you look at the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Well, I'm going to say most places. Okay. It is a time of judgment of wicked men. Now, understand, I, I do understand the day of the Lord is not always talking about the tribulation. Sometimes it was talking about God's judgment on Jerusalem through Babylon. I get that, and I, and, I, and I concede to that reality. But the truth is, most of the time when it talks about the day of the Lord, even if it's talking about a temporal thing concerning his judgment on Jerusalem, there's still undertones of that future judgment of Israel through the tribulation period and their subsequent salvation. Okay. So, but it is consistently linked with the judgment of wicked men, not with our salvation as believers okay I mean remember the, the Old Testament prophets didn't know about the church age they couldn't see that and so you're not going to find the rapture in the Old Testament because you don't find the church in the Old Testament right and so when you see that day of the Lord they're talking about the judgment of wicked men and you could find that in so many places um, it would take us forever to look at all the different locations so that is the third uh, definition and the last one we'll look at it is a time where God will deal with Israel specifically now, you could find this numerous places. I just picked two quick, easy ones. Go back to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. It is a time when God will deal specifically with Israel, not with the church. Yes, he is going to deal with the world, no doubt about it. But in that, he has a plan to break the power of the holy people. And one of the best places you can go to see the truth that God's that the day of the Lord is dealing with the nation of Israel would be Daniel 12. God has a plan in his day of the Lord. And it, one of those plans, when he's using his, when he's pouring out his wrath on the heathen and he lets the Antichrist come to power and he lets the Antichrist persecute Israel, one of his plans is to break the power of the holy people. And we see that in Daniel chapter 12. Bring them to their knees that they might accept the Messiah at his return. Uh, but Joel 2, 28 and following... Um, we see here that the Lord has a plan to deal with Israel, and I will pour, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And this was partially fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't the full fulfillment, but Peter quotes this as a partial near fulfillment, we would call it. This is all future stuff. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Sound familiar? Ever read Revelation? There's lots of that goes on in Revelation, isn't there? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. But where's this deliverance mainly going to be found? Where's the focus of this deliverance? For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And we go over here to Malachi chapter 4. Again, I understand we could go to so many different places and see that God's dealings with the day of the Lord are with Israel, but I just picked two quick things. Um, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God promises, Behold, I will send you Elijah. I do believe that is actually the resurrected Elijah, although there is great division on this, and I don't tend to get into an argument with anyone about it. Um, some people believe this was completely fulfilled in uh, John the prophet. John the Baptist 
that's fine. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's talking to Israel. The context is Israel. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. By the way, when the Hebrews read their Bible, this is all they have for a Bible, right? They don't have the New Testament. When they read this, they actually take that, I will smite the earth with a curse, and they flip-flop it because they don't want their Bible to end on a negative note. Man, alive. Isn't that sad? If they would just keep reading, they would find out the end of the story. Um, but that's what they do. Anyway, so that is the day of the Lord. Okay, it's important to understand as we transition. What is the result of the day of the Lord? Well, initially, things will be somewhat peaceful. What did Paul say? Uh, for when they shall say peace and safety. Well, you're not going to say that if you don't think that things are peaceful and safe. Okay, so initially, when you and I are removed from this earth, at the, at the rapture, for a very short, brief moment, things will seem like there is peace and safety. The Bible does seem to indicate that the Antichrist, go to Revelation 6 with me if you would, the Bible does seem to indicate the Antichrist will come to power with a certain measure of peace. And I want to be careful how I say that. Because I understand that there will be war, there will be trouble in the end times, and it will, it will rapidly take off. But initially it seems like Hey, maybe this guy has the answers. Remember his uh, Old Testament anti-type? Did I say that right? No, his Old Testament type, excuse me. In Daniel 11, Antiochus Epiphanes, who reigned in uh, the land of Israel around 160-ish BC, okay? This guy was a type of Antichrist for sure. And the way that Daniel 11 seamlessly transitions into the Antichrist at verse 36 clearly shows us, okay, this guy was definitely an Antichrist type. Do you know how Antiochus Epiphanes took over Syria? Because that's where he ruled. And then he had wars with um, the, um, what's the Egyptian king? Ptolemaeus, the Ptolemaic dynasty. Okay, he had wars with them back and forth. And then you had Israel stuck in the middle as kind of a buffer state. Well, he took over Syria, not by a lot of bloodshed. Now there was some bloodshed, but he mainly took over by subtlety. And Daniel 11 tells us that, right? That he will take the kingdom by flatteries. Remember that? And he'll cause craft to increase and all that. Well, that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Kind of came in and smooth talked to everybody. Sound familiar? We see a lot of that today, don't we? So kind of came in, smooth talked to everybody, made everything look good. Yeah, he, there was some definite bloodshed, no doubt about it, as he put down some um, opposers. But that's how kind of the Antichrist will seem to come into power. And Revelation 6 indicates that. And I want to be careful with this because it's hard to... I don't have all the answers to these things. But I'm going to give you some stuff that kind of makes sense. Revelation 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, which is a Roman symbol of... Somebody say it for me. Victory. That's the Roman symbol for victory. So when you see in the New Testament a white horse, what does our Savior come on? A white horse. Um, that was their way of indicating uh, the, the, the Roman general who won any famous battle. One of the honors they would do him is they would parade him down the streets of Rome on a white horse. And then you would have the procession going before him with all the, the oblations to their Roman gods. And then you would have all the prisoners following. And then you would have the prisoners sacrificed. And it sounds like a fun time, huh? But so the white horse is a symbol of victory. And he that sat on him had a bow. Now what goes with a bow? A bow is useless without arrows, arrows right? But no arrows are mentioned. And I, again, I'm trying to be careful with this. 
Okay? I don't want to read into it, but there are no arrows mentioned. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. I believe this is the Antichrist based on the events that follow. And Daniel 11, in the, uh, t- uh, in the type of Antichrist, Tychus Epiphanes, indicates that the Antichrist will come to power with a certain measure of peace. We know for a fact that he will make a peace treaty with Israel, right? And how do we know that? Well, beware. I'm going to visit this. This is one of my pet peeves. Um, Daniel 9.27 is how we primarily know the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel. And it says, and he will confirm the covenant with many for one week, one period of sevens. And in the midst of the week, will he cause the, the oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations shall he make it desolate. So in the middle of this period of sevens, which appears to be a seven-year period, at a three-and-a-half mark, 42-month mark, indicated by Revelation, the Antichrist will say that's it, and he'll cut Israel off and persecute them wholeheartedly, as we see in Revelation 12, where the dragon tries to consume Israel. I know this is a lot to put together. Bear with me. So... What we want to be careful with is a lot of people will go to Isaiah 28, um, 15. And they will use that as an indicator that Israel makes a covenant with the Antichrist. Let's visit that. And here's why I say we've got to be real careful with doing that. And I'm not mad. I understand that, that numerous churches and brethren that I love and would associate with use this verse. And I'm not disrespecting them when I say we really shouldn't use this verse. But the truth is what it is. I see it as I see it. And so the context, this is not talking about the future, although there probably is undertones of that. That's not the primary context. But Israel says, because you have said we have made covenant with death and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, I lay Zion for a foundation of stone. The Lord says, basically, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to annul your covenant with death. <coughs> so, what's the context? The context is Assyria. Israel made a covenant with death by making a covenant with Egypt. King Hezekiah tried to make a covenant with Egypt to help them deliver him from the hand of Assyria. Something God rebuked Hezekiah numerous times for in the book of Isaiah. Over and over and over again. Isaiah 30, 31, God is laying it hard on Hezekiah. Don't do this. Don't send your ambassadors to Egypt. Don't do this. But he did. We saw how well that turned out. But also, what did Ahaz, King Ahaz, do? He actually made a covenant with Assyria, the very ones who would oppress him, to deliver him from the oppression of northern Israel, specifically Syria, Ratzin, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of northern Israel. Tiglath-Pileser III says, okay, I'll deliver you. Sure, I'll come on over. He wipes out northern Israel, or at least suppresses them. And Ahaz, remember, according to Chronicles, goes to Damascus to give him honor. Remember that? And while he's there, what does he see? He sees an altar that he likes, comes back to Jerusalem, says, hey, make me an altar like I saw at Damascus, and we're going to worship on this primarily. And I'm going to make a covert. It says he made a covert for the king of Assyria in in the house of the Lord. In other words, he dedicated a porch to him. That's because Tiglath-Pleaser came over and helped him. But we know eventually that didn't work out well because it says that he actually did not help him at all. He ended up invading his own land, not Tiglath-Pleaser, Sennacherib later on, ended up invading his own land and almost totally destroying all of them. 
That's what God's talking about in Isaiah 28. So just be careful. Now, if you want to say, well, there's probably undertones of an apocalyptic interpretation here, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Just don't, you know, just don't go to this and go to war with somebody and say, well, I'm going to prove to you that this is talking about the Antichrist because you're going to be embarrassed. So, um, initially, well, things will seem to be peaceful, but world conditions will digress rapidly, my friends, rapidly. Look at Revelation chapter 6, and this is kind of probably where we'll spend the remainder of our time. While you're turning there, I'm just going to go to Isaiah or Daniel chapter 11, and I'm going to um, begin in verse 36. As Paul says, they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, right? Quick, snatches them up. Sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. But in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel gives us this amazingly accurate account of the Ptolemaic and the Syrian kings that were yet future to Daniel. And in this account, Daniel talks about, though he doesn't name him specifically, he talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, that wicked Syrian Roman guy who demented as demented could be, who would come over, gain power in Syria, and then oppress Israel, and eventually set up a statue of the Greek god Zeus, and completely, well, we think it was the Greek god Zeus, completely desecrate the temple, and do all kinds of abominable things we can't talk about in mixed company, and then destroy, eventually he would be destroyed. Okay. He was a type of Antichrist. And so, Daniel, in verse 36 seamlessly transitions into the Antichrist. And we know he's talking about the Antichrist from 36 on because none of these things fit Antiochus Epiphanes. Not a single one of them. They never happened in history. But they do fit the events described in Revelation. So look at the desolation that quickly comes. And the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. Yeah, he's going to quickly break that covenant with Israel. Oh, you want to worship Jehovah God? I don't think so. You're going to worship me. There is no Jehovah God. I'm going to fight against him. That's what the Antichrist does. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. But look at the desolation in Revelation 6 that quickly follows the Antichrist's rise to power. Revelation 6, verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red, the color of blood. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. You think, well, things are bad now. Uh Uh-uh. No comparison. When God says, peace, even in, in a wicked environment, peace is God's gift. He has a restraining hand on this society and on the societies of the whole world. And God has the ability to just, in a moment, remove all of that and say, you want to kill yourselves? Go for it. There will be no peace. There will be no conscience. There will be be nothing. I'm going to pull all of that from you, and everybody's going to have free reign to do whatever they want. That's going to be a mess. That's what this death angel does. At the commandment of the Almighty God, he pulls peace from the earth. And there was given unto him a great sword. And they are killing each other. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. This is the death angel of famine and destruction. Look at Lamentations chapter 5 with me, if you would. What, who wrote Lamentations? 
Jeremiah, what was he writing about? Right, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, right? And we know that things were pretty bad in Jerusalem after the Babylonians were done, right? Pretty bad. And one of the things that happened, uh, remember in his, this is a funeral dirge. The, the, whole, the whole book is a funeral song. And remember he says the women are, have sod, the hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They boiled their own kids. Everybody was totally starving to death. And one of the effects of starvation on the human body, at least according to Jeremiah, and this is, goes along with what Job said about his own situation when he was going through oppression and trials, is the color of the skin. Isaiah, or, uh, Lamentations 5, verse 10, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Then he goes on and describes other things that happened in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. So we have this black horse, this symbol of starvation and famine. And uh, he's given a pair of balances. The Lord gives him a pair of scales. He says, okay, I want, you to, I want you to specifically weigh the food supply of the earth. Not too much, not too little, just what I tell you. Look at this in verse 7, verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat. Now, that is approximately one liter. Okay, so just think about that. A little more than a quart, a little more than a quart of wheat. What would you expect to pay for, oh, I don't know, Alaska, a mother or a wife, Mrs. Young, what would you expect to pay for, I don't know, a bag of wheat in the store? I don't know, what, what would be a good number? Uh, a few dollars, maybe five max. I guess if I had to go pay for more than five bucks for a bag of wheat in the store, I'd be. So a measure of wheat for a penny. When John wrote this revelation, a penny was a day's wage. Okay. Now, let's say that, I mean, that can range, you know, if we're making less than 110 bucks a day in Oregon, we're probably not doing too well, right? Because we've got to pay rent. But let's say it's anywhere from 60 to to $100, the average day's pay. That's what a liter of wheat is going to cost in the tribulation period when things go down. Uh, and he says three measures of barley for a penny. That's about 100 bucks for barley grain, which is absolute, well, a liter of barley grain, which is way worse quality than wheat. Okay. That's a lot of money, folks. Now think about what people are going to make in the tribulation. I have no idea. But if all this is going down, jobs probably aren't, you know, probably people aren't thinking about their 401k right about now, right? And probably aren't thinking, well, I'm not taking a job if you don't have health insurance. They're probably just like, give me something. So they probably won't even be able to afford any of this. But he says, also, hurt not the oil and the wine. You see, the things that don't really matter are going to be abundant and the things that matter most aren't going to be there. And the things that are luxurious that normally we would fall over ourselves to obtain, people aren't even going to care about those because they can't even get what they need to live. This is going to be a rough time. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Let's read on. Because of all this, you're like, well, that's bad. Well, it doesn't stop there. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth voice of the fourth beast say come and see and I looked and behold a pale this is literally the word for green it's a little gross when you think about it but in Revelation 9 4 God says don't hurt any green thing exact same Greek word it's actually the root of this Greek word is from where we get the word chlorophyll for plants so the idea is a pale green like a dead body when somebody's dead and they just lose color 
and turn kind of greenish yellow. And I'm not trying to be gross, but it is what it is. This, this is the way the Bible describes it. So I saw this yellowish green pale dead horse, the Bible says. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. So here's this death angel. He's got war. He's got the death angel of war out in front of him. He's got the death angel of famine out in front of him. And he's, coming, he's following along. He's having a heyday. He's just reaping lost souls. Just reaping them. And hell's back here. And it's like he's just, he's just reaping them into his hell bag. Like this. Just death angel. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth. Now, if, if we take these numbers literally, I don't really see why we shouldn't. Um, this is a quarter of the earth's population. Gone. Like that. And with hunger and with the sword, with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So God says to the animal kingdom, hey, you don't have to fear man anymore. Go get him. You know, there's certain reasons, you know, the, lep, the, the mountain lions don't come into Corvallis because as of right now, God has allowed them to fear man. It's been that way since the flood. Okay. Um, but that's going to change. And, you know, they're going to come on down and be like, hey, let's go get lunch. And all of this stuff is going to just come upon them. So when Paul says, and sudden destruction cometh upon them, it is literally the idea, if I can illustrate this, of someone standing over you. And then you look up and you're like, whoa. That's the idea. And so here will be not only the Jewish nation, but the world in general. Like, oh, peace and safety. And then all of a sudden there's this eerie death angel. Like, whoa. And they go to get up and get out of there and they can't. And he says, and they shall not escape. And the language is emphatic. In other words, it's a double negative in the Greek, which normally in our language would cancel each other out. But in the Greek New Testament, it serves to make it stronger. And the idea is there's absolutely no way possible that these people will escape. So what do we do with this knowledge? I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's there. You say, well, that's terrible. It is terrible. And so our job is to not lose compassion for the lost. Our job is to take these things seriously. You know, and, and I understand we can't make anybody listen, and, and most people are going to just shut you down, especially when they've, you know, a lot of folks in our society have already made up their mind about religion. They don't, they don't care. They don't care. That's not my concern or yours. The only concern that we have is to say, you know, have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ? And if they shut you down, they shut you down. Like, okay. Thanks for letting me talk to you. And just leave them with that, you know, because maybe they'll soften up later on. You don't know what might happen down the road. But your job is not sit there and like, no, you'll listen to me. I got something to tell you. Um, they've already shut you down. They've already turned you off in their head. But it's a sad thing when we're just, you know, we're like, well, yeah, I got to tell you anything. You know, I, I assume you've probably already heard. How do we know? You know, and so all these things are going to come upon them and they're going to be part of all this. If Lord comes back in our lifetime, and, he, and even if he doesn't, when they die, they're going to the same place that all these people are going. And so all of this stuff we've just read and what we're going to read should give us more of a zeal um, and more of a compassion. You know, instead, of, I mean, instead of soaking yourself in Facebook and media and letting yourself become embroiled, I like that term because it adequately describes, it is easy to become embroiled. I can get embroiled just driving down the road and looking at a bulletin board. I can get embroiled. And it's so easy to get embroiled. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, wanting what's right. But understand, I can't really witness to anyone when I'm embroiled. And so let's just replace some of that with compassion and peace in God. He's got it all under control. Do our part where our part needs to be done. 
but let that compassion flow because all of this stuff we've just read and there's more to come is a reality let's pray father we thank you for allowing us to see these things and to share some of these things and uh, we thank you lord that you're constantly wanting to love people through us without that we would be completely lost in all of this and uh, we thank you for your grace and mercy and for the strength that you give to love and to find that peace in christ in jesus name we pray amen